Final Night Poetry Slam. I want to sew the world into its sheets. I want to beat it with a bat until the warning sticks. A handgun is a machine. I'm tired of holding the wounded animal of my heart and instructing it on how to bleed. All I see are stars in the mouth of a tiny ghost. You hear that? All those pins dropping. Hello and welcome back to the Mile High Poetry Slam podcast. Coming at you from the 303 broadcast to the entire world. I'm so glad you could join us. You know what? If you want to know what happened, how it happened, who was involved, and you want to get to know the people behind the poetry, well, you're in the right place. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Eddie Eifler. I will be your host for the next, oh, hour and a half or so. And for this episode, I thought I would change things up just a little bit. I usually put my review of what happened throughout the week at the front side of the podcast and then give you the interview at the back side, but I think I'm going to change it up. I think I'm going to give you the interview first and then give you the review from the week after that interview. We're going to see how this works. And I'm very, very excited for this interview that we've got this week. First of all, thank you so much. Huge thank you to Theo Wilson, Lucifury, our interview last week. It was so much fun. It was so great to have him uh, come on over and to talk about what was going on and in those 2007 and 2011 years and, and how he got started. It was, it was just such a, a fun, great interview. So thank you again to Theo Wilson. But this week's interview, I've got a very special treat for you. This week's interview is with local Poetry Slam legend, national champion, competing member of the 2006 National Championship team from Denver, also the coach of 2011's Slam Nuba National Championship team. This is none other than Jen Rinaldi, everybody. This is going to be an excellent interview, and I'm so excited for you to get to hear what we talked about. We really cover a lot of ground in this interview from when Jen first got interested in poetry and and first went to the Mercury Cafe all the way up through that 2011 championship Nuba team. It's, It's a lot going on. And Jen is literally one of my favorite humans walking this earth today. So I'm so happy. I'm so glad she gave us the time and, and just tell these stories about what happened and how it happened, who was involved. You want to get to know the people behind the poetry? Yes, yes, calling back. Amazing. And then after that interview, we're going to dive into what happened throughout the week. So without any further ado, here is your interview for this week, none other than Jen Rinaldi. Our guest this week is... Denver legend. Oh my god. Slam champion. <laughs> Denver distinguished teacher. Oh my god. Jen Rinaldi. How are you, Jen? I'm great, Eddie. How I'm are so you? glad to be here talking to you today. I'm glad to be here as well. I've got some questions for you. Okay. Alright. Uh, I'm just going to treat this more like a timeline, more chronological. Okay. I would very much love for you to tell all of our listeners about how you got involved in poetry, how you got involved in Mercury Cafe, like those early days. Oh, God. Okay. Well, I'm an English teacher, and I've always loved poetry. And I actually had a bunch of students at uh, Denver South High School 
rebels. Um, I had a bunch of students who were like, oh my God, miss, have you been to the Mercury Cafe? And no, I was new to Denver. I'd never even heard of it. And they said, oh, you have to go down there. You know, it's this amazing thing, the poetry slam, the way that you love music, the way that you love poetry, the way that you love hip hop, like you're just going to love it. It's going to be fantastic. And I was like, all right. So (laughs) the first time I went there, couldn't find it. They had like given me the wrong place and everything. And I drove around for a while and I couldn't find it. So I, you know, I went home. Uh, The next time I had more accurate directions um, and I made it over there and I came in and this is kind of funny. So I come in, the place is absolutely packed and it is like 110 fucking degrees in there. And I stand at the back and people keep getting up to the microphone. And I now know in retrospect that it was just one of those phases the open mic goes through. However, it would have seemed like there was a directive to only do vag poetry. So I'm standing at the back in this hot room that's like totally packed. And one person after another gets up and does poems about vaginas, about their own, about other people's, about what they like to do with them, about how magic they are, and whatever. And while I am impressed, I'm like, this might not not be my crap. And and not not that there's anything wrong. I'm not anti-vagina. I'm pro-vagina, generally. (laughs) You know, however, I'm like, this might not be my scene. I'm just checking. And I'm about to leave, and this dude with spiky hot pink hair gets up and says okay everybody uh you know smoke them if you got them we're gonna start the slam in 20 minutes and i'm like oh that wasn't the slide because i didn't know i have no idea what this is the people sitting next to me literally where i was standing against the wall were like we're leaving if you'd like to sit down so i sat down and 20 minutes later um the features that night were the chicano messengers who were coming from san jose um, and they were absolutely amazing. As a matter of fact, I taught for Mark David Pinade poems this morning in 2017 because they they made such an impression on me that night. I mean, it was like, it blew my fucking mind. I mean, they were just amazing. That was, um, ah, what are their names? So Mark David Pinade, Paul Flores, and Amalia Ortiz. And Amalia Ortiz. And Amalia Ortiz did her Women of Juarez poem. And Paul, Flo- I mean, they were just, they were incredible. So I'm like, okay, this is really cool. And then the slam started. And again, in retrospect with everything I know, I know that I was there on this like amazing night where Andrea Gibson and Aaron Bradley and Ian Doherty and everything. So was that team selection that year? No. No. Okay. It was, it was just a slam. Yes, it was around that time. the week before maybe. But all these heavy hitters came out. And Andrea was actually slamming, and Andrea got up, and this is the moment. Andrea got up and did Blue Blanket, and at the end of Blue Blanket, when she says that final line, when she says, it's not what you're going to teach your daughters, it's about what you're going to teach your sons, I literally, sitting in my chair, went, (gasps) and like, gasped. And that was it. And I I was hooked, and I started coming every week, and... You know, I was obsessed. I had absolutely no intention myself of ever getting on stage or being involved. Like, that just wasn't even on the radar. I was the number one fan, you know, of the Denver Slam team. And then um, and then when they went to Nats in St. Louis, um, I was a teacher and I was free. 
and I had been following them all season and they were amazing and I had seen their send-off show and I was so moved by it and whatever. And I had a couple of students who had just graduated, who were seniors who had just graduated. And they had gotten into it as well. Oh, so if we're doing it chronologically, I should go back a little. So okay. I was totally into this. Um, and before the end of my school year, I asked a poet. Um, I decided I could do this at my high school. Like I could, I could do this. Post the slam at the high school. So we had um, two slams at the high school because the first one was so well attended like that kids were hanging off the rafters, um, that, that my principal insisted that I have two. So that first year, um, so Polly Lippman was the first feature at, who had at spiky the high school. Neon pink who hair. had spiky neon pink hair. Um, and it's so funny, like, I was so afraid that I wouldn't be cool enough to hang out with Polly. You know what I mean? Like, I just thought he was the shit, um, as I still do. And it just... Um, and it's, again, it's so funny, like, you know, then you live another 10 years and in retrospect, like we've been friends for all this time and, and we really love each other. And Polly's so accepting of everybody. So it's not like he would have, you know, but I was like terrified that he's going to think I was this big nerd or whatever. Um, anyway, so I had gotten my kids interested in SLAM because we had had a couple at the high school and a couple who graduated were absolutely enamored. Um, and when they were talking about, you know, so pray for us in St. Louis, like we're going to be there, blah, 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 blah. One of my students was like, we should go. And I was like, what do you mean we should go? And she was like, we should go. Road trip, St. Louis. Like how, you know. And I was like, no, we can't do that, you know. Um, but we did. So we went. And unbeknownst to everybody, because, I mean, Denver had been doing well, but not that well. And they made final stage. And so we got to St. Louis and saw them in their semi-bout, which obviously they won. And then we saw them on final stage. And, you know, they couldn't believe that Jen Rinaldi had come all the way from Denver, you know, and brought fans and, and that we were there. And it was just kind of this really magic thing that happened. At that point, I still had no interest in myself being involved. And this is 2004. Yes. Because that was the year they yes. finals, they took second place, Hollywood won the whole thing. Yes. So just for just for chronological sake. You know, yes. 2004. Um, towards the, I guess it was early in 2006, I wanted to raise the level of the kids slamming at South, and I wanted to set an example. So I was like, oh, you know, I should, I should write a slam poem and show them that we can all do this. Like, that yes, you know, these people are magic, but like we have a little magic and, and at least start the process and whatever. So politically at the time, if people will recall, um, George Bush was in office and, um, and people were upset about it. He, he had uh, been elected for the second time. And people were just fucking bewildered. And the whole phrase, what would Jesus do, was like really a big deal at the time. Um, and, you know, through the brilliance of the strategists and operators in the GOP, somehow the idea of evangelical Christianity had been connected to the Republican Party. And in defending these candidates, people often were invoking Jesus, you know, and the like, well, and all the, the Christians were 
voting for this guy. And it was absolutely fucking astonishing to me. And I had found myself having the same conversation over and over with lots of different people in different ways. Like just as a conversation, you know, I would have a little rant where someone would say like, oh, blah, 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 George Bush. And I was like, oh my fucking God, you know? And all these Christians are like, George Bush, George Bush, George Bush, when he is so unchristian and he doesn't want, although side note, what would we give to have him oh back at the moment? Oh. But anyway, moving on. Hindsight, right? So I kept saying, like, you know, I'm an atheist. However, like, this has nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus would be fucking appalled by the things that these people do. So that ended up being the source material for the first slam poem I wrote. And, um, of course, not yet understanding the importance of editing, um, so my first version of that poem was like five and a half minutes long. Like it was forever. Um, and had all kinds of details and all kinds of stuff. Um, however, something exciting happened. So all of my friends, who I was now friends with, all the poets that I admired so much at the Mercury Cafe, and everyone encouraged me, um, particularly one Kenneth Arkind, um, kept encouraging, like, you should read at the open mic. You should read at the open mic. He, he had heard my, he had been a feature for me and had heard me do the Jesus poem at South and was like, Jen, you have to read that at the open mic. I'm like, oh, no, no, I don't want to And he's like, no, you have to. Come on, read it at the open mic. So on one of the more special nights of my life, uh, I ventured up, and it was no longer a vagina-centered open mic. Um, it had moved on at that point, although it always returns. Just so you I know, mean, it's cyclical. It is. It is cyclical. <laughs> so, <clears throat> um, so I got up at the Mercury Cafe and did the Jesus poem. Jen rock the Jesus piece. And I got a huzzah on the open mic, which I'd been coming every single week for two and a half years, and I'd never seen anybody get a huzzah on the open mic. So I have to admit that was like a hmm. Maybe I could do this you thing. Got a little magic. Right? Maybe, yeah. And and it felt great, you know, and it was pretty exciting and people seemed to like it and whatever. Um so I decided I was gonna try it and uh and I'm a pretty all or nothing person. Like if I'm in, I'm all in. So I hired me a coach. No payment at all. Um and I decided, frankly, that the other poets around me that I really admired, um, like Young American Eddie and Ooh, Kenneth Arkind wow. and Aaron, Brad, uh, Aaron Bradley and Ian Doherty, that out of those people, only one of them was enough of a dick to be the coach that I really <laughs> needed to have. So Ken would have been too nice. He was always way too nice to me. Ian, would have, everybody would have been too nice except for Aaron Bradley. I was absolutely confident that Aaron would be a dick and be super demanding and everything. And I have to say, he really, like, he really was. He, he was fantastic. Through. He came, he came through. through. No, but I really admired his work. Um, he had a couple of poems at the time that just, you know, blew my head off. And so um, I wrote a few more poems and I started working on my performance with Aaron Bradley because if I was going to slam, like, I wanted to come strong. I didn't want to, like, trickle around the sides. Again, I'd been watching now loyally every single Sunday for years. If I was going to actually enter the slam, like, I wanted to do well. So, <laughs> in April of 2006, uh, I was in a slam. 
and some of my gods were in the same slam. Uh, Katie Worsing was in that slam, and Aaron Bradley was in that slam. Uh, and I won. Yeah, you did. Yeah. So my first slam ever, my rookie slam, uh, I won, which was kind of exciting. And lo and behold, team tryouts were within the next month. Yeah, like the, that was at the beginning of the month. And by, by the end of the month, I was on the Denver Mercury 2006 slam team. And it was uh, astonishing and everything. And I felt very much out of my league, you know. Um, I was on this incredible team. So let's recap. Who was on that team? Oh, the amazing Kenneth Arkind, mm-hmm. Panama Sueto, mm-hmm. Ebony Isis Booth, Isis. Uh, and Katie Worsing. And Jen Rinaldi. And then Jen Rinaldi. So I felt like like Quasimodo at the end of all these people. Um, first of all, they were like all phenomenal poets that I was a huge fan of. Um, they were all polished performers. Ebony hadn't been a slammer. She was a poet who was super well respected at Cafe Nuba and she was around, but she had decided to try, I'm just going to try slam. And of course she came and she won the city champ and yep. she was just, I mean, to this day, she is just a phenomenal force of nature. Um, and she's just beautiful inside and out and powerful. And anyway, so this is the team I found myself on and I was humbled to be on it and just like, oh my God, and terrified um, that I wouldn't live up to the team. Um, and fun little note, um, I dropped my poem at, at uh, team selection. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I dropped my Dear John poem in the middle of it. I do not remember. I did, yeah. and, um, but got it back and got it back in time, which is just amazing. So, 2006, you're on this team, <clears throat> Team of Destiny, some yes. might say. Uh, what were your experiences like that year in the 2016? They were a challenge. Um, however, that was the first experience I ever had with writing as a group. Um, and that was pretty amazing. Like, to be with all these brilliant people and have all of us contribute and then somehow find the magic of putting that together as a poem. Um, our coach was Ted Baca, and he was pretty brutal as far as making us drill things and whatever and making us perform in weird places, you know, just show up at the 16th Street Mall and perform, show up at the skater park and perform, you know, because the skaters really wanted to hear us and that kind of thing. But all of those things, you know, had a purpose to make us more comfortable with doing it. So um, fell in love with everyone on the team. um, And our alternates were Young American Eddie and Bianca McCann. And... um, and Polly was always there somehow. Because as well. Bianca and Polly tied. Oh, that's why. They okay. They were the two alternates, and I was so, like assistant coach. Or, okay. Yeah. Okay. I just remember us all being we part of it. We were all there. Yeah. We, we were all the, there. We had the deepest crew. We had nine yeah. fucking people that year. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. Um, and then it started, the poems themselves started to be magic, you know? Um the more we competed, you know, we did like our send off and everybody locally loved us and, and everything like that. And then we went to the Southwest shootout. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe it was in Albuquerque that year, I, I want to say. It was, I it was. And, and so <laughs> this kind of cool thing happened uh, that ended up repeating. So we were, we were down. Um, after the first round, we were in fourth place uh, at the Southwest shootout. And we got up. Um, and did another poem 
and that poem catapulted us into first. And when we realized that we had mathed out the other teams, I turned to Ebony and I was like, we just won the motherfucking Southwest shootout. And she was like, yeah, we did. And so then that became a thing. So that was the beginning of our run. Like we had kind of a rocky time at that, at the Southwest shootout at the beginning. <clears throat> we were not winning our rounds. We were not, you know, but then we won. And then we won everything. And then like everything we went to. So there was the dips, which remember we won we the guacamole. Not. Yeah. No, and that we, wasn't that year, was it? That was that year? No, that was the next year. That was 07. Pan and Soweto did their duet. And they called it a time penalty, even though it wasn't a time penalty. And that's how we ended up losing. Huh. We took second place. Okay. So at the dips. At the dips. At the dips. Where Wait, you won but, but we're getting ahead. We're getting ahead. Okay. One of the, you talked about magic and you talked about send-off shows. Mm-hmm. To me, one of the most surreal experiences of that entire summer was the Casbah. Oh, my God. Talk to me about the Casbah. I forgot about the Casbah. So, oh, my, yes. So the Casbah had this show... Um, had this show every week and, and it was real. Um, the Casbah show was run by some OGs and it was, I don't even know what words, like it was seriously hood and proud and happy. Like it was cool. Like, and I did not feel cool enough to go to the Casbah. You know, it was definitely an Afrocentric crowd and it was a whole different vibe from the Merc. And, you know, we were used to our little fan base and whatever. But the Casbah reached out to us um, because some of our, because Panama was a deadly pen. He was a pen. So. And and ISIS knew some of those cats Yes. So they reached out to us and said, well, do you want to come and feature before you leave? And, you know, we'll pass the hat. And we were like, okay. So um, we get there and we're sitting there and we, and okay. So me and Kenny and Katie felt really, really white, like really, really white sitting there. I have to admit. Um, And we were like amazing, you know, ruckus got up and did like the poets there were phenomenal and everything, but it was not, we're like, Kenny's going to get up. You know, and do four West. It is, you know, like he's gonna do this poem about this little white girl who cuts herself. Like it's just, you know. However, you want to talk about magic? You're so right. That was the most amazing night. So Kenny gets up and does four West, and fucking kills it. Like everyone, in it. You want to talk about universality? You know, like he couldn't have been more different. And the audience there embraced it. They were like, wow. You know, and they listened and they heard and they felt and they shouted out and it was amazing. And then, uh, so, so we had this poem, I had this poem, um, called the Dear John Love Letter to the Men Who Will Not Be. And this was something that Ebony and Katie wrote into and they wrote really powerful stuff into it. Um, but it was the only piece with the three female members of the team. Um, and you want to talk about feeling like Quasimodo. I had to stand up there between the gorgeous, tall, stunning Katie Worsing and Ebony Ice's booth. And the magical Jen Oh, uh, yeah. But I, fe- I, I felt center. like... Front and center. I guess. I, I, I was, because it was my poem. So the way that we cho- choreographed it, but the way that we stood. Anyway, the three of us get up there. 
to do this poem that we've all written. And, you know, the gist of the poem is, um, is loving men who do not reach their potential and are self-destructive. And this fucking struck a chord with this crowd like nothing I've ever seen. Like there are some nights when it is magic and you can feel it in the room and whatever. And we started doing this poem and people were losing their fucking minds. Like as we went through it, they were shouting and crying and screaming and they started throwing money at us, which I mean, literally it almost got us off our game because literally they had mentioned earlier. Um, what is that guy's name? Reality. Who ran it? Reality, Reality. Mm-hmm. had mentioned that this was a fundraiser, that they were going to represent the, you know, our fair city and everything and that people should, you know, feel free to empty their pockets and blah, 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 blah. But they did it while we were doing the poem and they threw money at the stage. Like literally at your feet. Like, like at our feet while we were performing. And, and threw it at your feet. It was over $200. Like when we collected the money. Oh, wait, wait, wait. We? I'm, I'm sorry. We. Who collected this this money? I do believe that young American Eddie. Yeah, you want to talk about feeling white? Awkward, Are right? Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> you had to go up and, and pull the crumpled sweaty dollar bills. Yes. Off of the off stage. Off the stage. Yes. <laughs> Um, however, that was so amazing. And the love that the Casbah poured out to us that night was just unparalleled and gave us this huge boost of confidence that our work touched everybody. That like, it wasn't just something, um, unique to our audience that, that we could expand it and everything. And that was, that was a beautiful venue and a beautiful night. And that was pretty amazing. Still one of the most like crazy surreal nights. Oh my oh, god, my absolutely. Like, absolutely. <laughs> just the crazy thing happened. So then we we go to Dallas. We lose on a bullshit time penalty. Yeah, I said it. Fight me. Oh my god. And so what the reason I remember that so vividly is because once we got to Austin. I remember we're all standing on a street corner. I think it might be like the day of uh prelims, prelims. or something. And Katie Worsing's like, "Hey guys, we're going to win nationals." And we're like, "Come on, Katie. Yeah. What are you talking about?" Because that was the year of 11-11. Right. And so Katie's like, no, we're going to win because we lost the Dallas thing and we'd have won everything else, but now we have to get four ones. We have to get 11-11 if we're going to win this. And so we just, we're going to win. And I was like, okay, sure. Uh-huh. That, that's what you got to think. And then fucking lo and behold, <laughs> that's what happened. We did. So uh, take me through the the Nationals experience. Oh, my God. Well, so I had been there twice as a fan. Um, I had been there in 04 on the magical road trip. And then I was there in 05 at the hotel in Albuquerque that was just bizarre. The year that they're not speaking name. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was not Denver's best year, although there were amazing people. Um, but it, whatever. The team was just pulled in all different directions, personally and, um, and poetry-wise. And it just couldn't <clears throat> solidify. So the trip to Albuquerque in 05 had been kind of a downer for everybody. So here we are in Austin. First of all, Austin in August is so fucking hot all the time. Um, <laughs> and yet, uh, so however, that led to us spending a lot of the first couple days in the hotel room. And that was good because we all bonded and we, you know, girls room for life. And we spent like all that time talking and and. 
Um, and at that point, we were all really tight as a team. So that was, as I've learned in subsequent years, an absolutely essential component going into the competition. Yeah, I'd like to say that like everyone, everyone was really, really solidified even before that. You know, we, yeah. we could hang out at Tom's Diner absolutely. At, at least once a week. It, just absolutely. Like, just laugh and talk about things. But yeah. yeah, it was pretty huge. So... Yeah. Um, I got to tell you, a lot of it is a blur. Um, so for me, the weird, one of the weird things is my parents, came, my father and my stepmother were on a road trip. And I was like, oh, well, we're going to be in the National Poetry Slam in Austin. But, so they came to Austin and fell in love with Slam and became obsessed, like instantly when watching the preliminary bouts. My stepmother kept score for the whole rest of the tournament and you know, had commentary on all these different teams and like they were fascinated by the whole thing. Um, so that was kind of special for me that they were there because I had not expected that. Like they hadn't told me they were coming until like a week before. Um, but as we started competing, so, oh, some of this was turbulent. I don't know. Um, we did well in both of our prelims and then going into semis, um, there was some question about what poems we should use. And the strategy always had come up. And Ted was not confident in my poem and had let that be known through various leaks of information. Um, so going into the semi-bout... Was that semis or was that... Oh, was that the second prelim? I think that prelim. was the second, pre- second prelim. Yes. And that place, yes. That place was... Bananas. Well, because we oh. had our borders poem, but Albuquerque had a better one. Well, we had fences and they had We had borders. fences and yeah. they had borders. Yeah. And like while our poem was fantastic and I still maintain that it was fantastic, theirs was from lived experience and And Albuquerque's always a And they're always a fucking powerhouse. Yeah. And they were our sister city and we love them yeah. and so anyway, so I guess it was that second prelim. And um so there was a lot of dissent in the hotel that afternoon before going, and we had been all super bonded and everything had felt good, but then I didn't want to do the poem if he didn't believe in it. Um, but then other people got involved, whatever. Then other team members were like, no, that's bullshit. We have to do this. But then, you know, the person whose alternative poem it would have been. Anyway, there was dissent over it. Finally, after hashing it out and arguing, everyone was like, no, you're just going to do the poem. So that, that was my experience. Like, obviously I'm speaking... I'm up from a narrow lens of my experience. Um, but then I was unsure of it because like, it's like, well, my coach isn't confident. So what am I going to do? Um, so the first time I've ever been saged in my life, uh, was outside the venue. And I believe that was Bianca and Ebony. Um, we're like, we need to sage. We need to clear all of this bad energy and we need to make sure that we're united again when we come in. Um, and ain't that a motherfucker if it didn't work, if it didn't, like, kind of clear things out and we went in clear-headed and whatever. Um, so it's a call back to uh, what we were talking about before. Which poem was this? This would be the What Would Jesus Do would Jesus poem. Do? Um, which, you know, I don't think is my best poem. It's not my best writing. But it sure kicks like a motherfucker when, when it hits the crowd right. So I'm pretty sure we had the high score. After you we read did. that poem, I'm pretty sure. We did. Yeah. So, so yeah, I guess, long story short, I ended up doing the poem, um, you know, kind of killing it. I. It was a high 
something. I don't remember exactly. You probably do because you're a freak like that. But it was like it was the, like a twenty nine six or a twenty nine seven. I have the scores at home. Yeah. So um, and it did put us into first place solidly, like by several tenths of a point. So, um, so yeah. And then we went on to semis, and uh, semis was another example of the team having to come from behind. Yes. In in the third round, we we were behind mm-hmm. to uh, Austin, I think, Neo Soul. Mm-hmm. And, I'm not surprised. And if memory serves, uh, Ken did four West, and he just barely edged out the high score of that round. I don't think we were in first right. at that point, but we we had started climbing back into contention, and then we saved fences. For last. Yes, I do remember that. I do remember that. And we did take it. And, and so Fences had a really special place on that team because that was our five-person group piece. That was the piece that all five of us had created out of whole cloth. You know, we, um, it wasn't someone else's poem that, you know, which, I mean, there's nothing wrong with, you know, we made Dear John a great poem by writing into it and everything, but it was a poem that we created as a team. And it was very powerful. And it was a very important issue. Unfortunately, it still fucking is. Yes, it is. But um, it was an issue about the border and about immigration and about the way that we treat immigrants and and everything. And it was something um, that we all cared a lot about. Anyway, it was a great poem, and we won some eyes. Mm-hmm. And then final stage. And at the time, the no-repeat law was... So there was a couple years following that where you couldn't repeat all the way through. Um, that was not true then. Yeah. So we had all of our pockets to choose from for our final stage selection. Mm-hmm. And then we went to final stage. So, oh my God. So that whole day was super crazy. We had to go hours early for sound checks and everything. And um, and the venue was cavernous. And... So to, to paint a picture here, the finals venue was literally a, a hangar. Like an airplane yes. hangar. That yeah. they converted into a venue, and it, it was, you're right, it was cavernous, the, the sound was like nothing you'd ever heard in your life. Yeah. And um, backstage, I was surprised, and I am not going to name names, um, but prominent poets who we had previously been super friendly with from other teams were kind of cold-shouldering us backstage. Mm-hmm. And I didn't get it. You know, like, I was like, oh, like, she was just so nice to me yesterday. Um, but apparently we were seen as a threat because all of a sudden Rightfully so. <clears throat> we were getting people's game face and, you know, their uh, feelings about competition. So anyway, um, if I dare say, I mean, finals was a rout. Like we mapped out hard yep. in the third round. Yep. In the third round, I can't remember what it was, but like, the next closest team to us would have had to get like a 33 to beat us. So we knew we'd mapped out at which point Ebony Isis Booth looked at me and she said, we just won the motherfucking national poetry slam. And I was like, yeah, we did. Um, And we did. And it was surreal and amazing. And we won the coolest trophy in the whole entire world. That is a great trophy. It's a great trophy. And, uh, yeah, and it's one of the events of my life that I think, you know, because nobody's life ever goes the way they think it's going to, and mine certainly hasn't um, in lots of ways. But I always tell, especially because I'm around teenagers all the time, 
when they discover that, that's often a really disillusioning and upsetting thing that your life doesn't, this is not what I wanted. This is not what I wanted. It's like, yeah, well, you know, lots of parts don't go the way we wanted, but then unbelievably magical things happen that you never expected. I never in a million years expected to win the National Poetry Slam with the Denver Slam, with the Mercury Slam team. At the time, it was the Denver Slam team because there was only one team. Two years before, you didn't even know what a National Poetry Slam was. I really didn't. Yeah, exactly. You know? And, uh, and those are memories I cherish and, and the work that we created that summer was really amazing and I will... Love those people. You know, like it, it was powerful yeah. and it was quite the moment and it was uh, a proud moment for Denver. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. For sure. So that's 2006. Mm-hmm. 2007 is the, <laughs> the first oh. year of Nuba. So now Denver has two different teams that they're sending to the Nationals and that mm-hmm. was the year that Nuba won the guacamole and, and all of that. And, and everything. And everything. And well, they didn't win everything. No. But they made it to final stage. They, they came in fourth and all those things. Um, what do you remember about 2007? What are your experiences? Well, again, now this is a narrow, like, it's going to sound like I'm so self-centered, but like, obviously it's my experience. I'm asking you, right? Um, so I did not make the team Mm -hmm. and I fought hard to make it. Um, if memory serves, you got two tens on that team I got a 29.9 and then Amy got a 30. Yeah. Something. Yeah, like I mean, Amy a, beat me by one-tenth of a point. You had just like a ridiculously high score for not making a team. I did. Yes. Um, but I have to admit, it was hard on the ego. You know, it was definitely, like, I was I was national champion from last year and whatever. Um, however, I could not be, like, now, in retrospect, could I possibly be happier that Amy Everhart kicked my ass and made the team? No, because she's magic and beautiful and powerful and and we needed her, and I didn't know that. Um so the next couple of years were rough on me. Um, I kind of got thrust into coaching and then people weren't really sure that I would be okay at it. So they didn't want to call me the coach. <laughs> Whatever, there's you know. Definitely some, some there's a lot of stories there. there. There's a lot of stories there. Um, however, so we did okay in 07 and 08. But Nuba kicked our ass and frankly, Nuba won the psychological game. Um, at the time it was all supposed to be one love, one love. And like, now we have two teams cause we can support it. Um, but there was definitely, you know, Nuba wanted to come hard out of the gate and they did, and they were loaded for bear. And part of that was, um, some of their team played a psychological game and they won that game because they intimidated our team. <laughs> like they really did. They but really you did. Guys, you never went head to head against them in 07. No, no. It was just more of like a general... It was under the breath kind of stuff. Under the breath kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, however, they were still our friends and our sister team. And we were like thrilled to see them do as well as they did. I mean, we would have liked to do better, you know, but it was great to see them do as well as they did. So it's 07 and 08. Um, then oh. 09. So I was done after 08. Um, I, whatever. I had had a rough life in my... Per, a rough year in my personal life. Um... I felt the team didn't trust me at all as a coach. Um, I didn't even go. I didn't go to nationals that year. I was the coach for the 08 Merck team, but it became really clear in the month leading up to Nats that they had no interest in my strategizing, that they weren't taking any advice for anything that I gave on any of the poems. And so I was like, well, then they don't want my coaching. (laughs) So, um, So I pretty much... 
I didn't really quit. I still like showed up at rehearsals if they wanted me to um, and offered my two cents, but my two cents wasn't worth very much at that time. So anyway, um, so the team went and did okay, you know, but not fantastic. Um, they had some really beautiful work and everything. Like I'm, I'm still proud of the 07 and 08 teams. Like they still had some really good stuff. I mean, noticeably, and this is just kind of like a super quick review, but some of the, the big poems that especially came out of 07 were uh, The Nice Guys Duet with Matt and with, Kim oh. and Godbox. Mm-hmm. Godbox is to this day one of the greatest poems. One of the best group pieces I've ever seen in my ever. life. Ever. Absolutely. Uh, 08, you had um, Finger in the Dust, if I'm mm-hmm. correct there. You had... Uh, Pencils Down. Pencils Down. That was the first year of Pencils Down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Dan Lehman. Yeah, a lot of work that, at least Pencils Down, made it a number of years after yeah. that. Like, it's, it's exactly. really gone. But yeah. Yeah. So those were... So again, this is my narrow lens. Yeah. But so those yeah. were seminal years. Like yeah. Were, yeah. So, 09, I had no intention of having anything to do with the team. I was going to be like, I was going to go back to being super fan, and that was it. And then I agreed, at the request of Young American Eddie... To be the scork, to be the voice of God for the team selection for 09 at the Mercury Cafe. And it was magic. And so your 09 Mercury Cafe team was Amy Everhart, Claire Connolly, Lindsay, I don't even remember her last name. I think it's... She's, Phenomenal poet, because yeah, then she got married. She got married. I think it's McGuire now. It is, yeah. yeah. Lindsay McGuire. Um, <clears throat> and she's... Amazing. Yeah. Polly Lippman and Allende Russell, Allende. the game changer. Yeah. Allende Russell. That was the year he wrote that grandfather piece, right? Yes, yeah. it was. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so, um, I took one look at that team and really wanted to coach it. I really wanted to coach it. And um, some people were a little bent out by that because someone else had already agreed to coach and I was like no I will and they went with me and so that kind of pissed people off and I didn't mean that but um but I wanted to coach that team like there was so much talent and they were so beautiful and everything um and what followed was one of the most magic best teams I've ever had um so it's not one of like the ones that won the National Poetry Slam but um as far as the experience of being a team and growing together as writers and poets and people and having that positive energy and that magic and that bond of the team, nothing will ever beat 09. Seriously. Like, nothing. Nothing? Nothing. Uh, I'm going to challenge you on that. Okay. But so anyway, so we, so um, it was hard for Ande to switch. He had been on Nuba and he came over to Merck. Um, and, you know, obviously Amy and Claire were together at the time. And, and so they had a connection. But the rest of us, um, you know, Lindsay was new to the scene. And, um, you know, Polly was stalwart and true, as he always is. But he had never worked with any of these people. And Allende had never worked on the Merck side. It was, it was a new experience for all of us. But again, it quickly became magic and um, I have to say 
working with five people who trusted me to be their coach and who wanted me to be their coach and wanted to listen to what I had to say made all of us trust each other and made made it work. It made it work. And I was able to be a really good coach because... Um, because I was able to throw out ideas. You know, that was the year we did the Hibakusha poem about um, the women in Japan when, when the atomic bomb hit, the, the flowers, the, the of, flowers Hiroshima. Of, Hir- of Hiroshima, mm-hmm. where um, the flowers in their kimonos were etched into their skin when the bombs hit. Mm-hmm. Um, we did Reaching for Red. We, I mean, it was just, it was so beautiful. And we had beautiful, powerful work. Um, And we went to West Palm Beach, Florida, and loved each other and had a great time. And it was one of the first times that, um, that the way that we hung out in the downtime, that I recognized how powerful that. We went to the beach every day, you know what I mean, and swam in the ocean. And certain very macho members of... The Nuba team and the Merc team might have been afraid of sharks. And I might have promised them that I would fuck up any shark that came anywhere near them. That if Jen Rinaldi was in the water, they didn't have to worry about it. I was an ocean girl. Um, And we really, we just had an amazing time. So we did not win. We came in second in our semis bout to Denise Jolly and the San Fran team. That was amazing. Um, Frankly, there was definitely a shift towards Indies that year. And and we were super group. Peace-based. Yeah. Well, I mean, Denver as a city has always been really super group peace-based. Absolutely. And we yeah. still were. Yeah. And we were off-trend at that point. However, um, I will never feel bad about that nationals because we had beautiful work that we felt so deeply, um, that we felt so good about performing together. We had an amazing week in West Palm Beach. And... And, you know, Albuquerque made final stage that night, and we love them, and San Francisco was beautiful. I don't remember who the other two teams. I'm sure you do. But um, they were all, you know, like, they did great. They did great. Um, Nuba was in that semis bout with us, and we did beat them. And the only reason that's significant, so... We, you know, thus starting several years in which we were fucking pitted against each other a lot. That's true. You you had a good run oh. of a number of years. Um, so you have to understand, like we really loved the people on Nuba. Um, but at that point, again, that psychological game I had talked about earlier got ratcheted up, you know, and there was definite um, there was beef. Like they showed beef to us repeatedly. And we just kind of shook it off and shook it off and shook it off. Because again, like at the end of the day, you're still talking about friends and people that we love, you know. Um, But they kept like talking shit. And you know what? I mean, it's a very masculine sports oriented kind of shit talking that just, I mean, my brother and all his friends always did it in video games and whatever. And I recognize that for what it was. Um sort of the bad byproduct of the competition. Yes, absolutely. Um, But when we beat them in the semis round, again, these are people who know us and love us and we're friends. Um, A couple of the members of Nuba caught me downstairs. And they were like, this is because your team has unity. 
And I'm like, yeah, it is. It is. You know? And again, I mean, if we beat them, we beat them by like one tenth of a point or two tenths of a point. Like it wasn't like San Francisco whooped all of us. And then we came in second and Nuba came in third, but it was, you know, splitting hairs and everything. But um, it sent a message that was recognized for all of the poets competing at that time for Nuba and for Merck, that how you related to one another as a team did matter. And that carried through for the next several years in really powerful, positive ways. So that's 09. So now talk to me about 2010, another magical year. Okay, it was. Um, So 2010 saw me back on a slam team, which was great. Like I hadn't been on a team since 06. Um, And I went out for Slam Nuba and made Slam Nuba. Um, And I got to work with Amy Everhart and Jovan and Allende and Megan Rickman. And we produced some beautiful work. That was when we did our dog's poem about 9-11. And and that was another great experience that kind of got me back into the mode, you know, of what I needed to be doing. Um, yeah, so that was another magic team with magic people who were meant to be together that summer. One thing I remember about that year is the photo shoot. Oh my God. Talk to me about the photo shoot. So in 2010, the photo shoot that we did, um, we were playing up on We Cut Heads. So we had all these ridiculous, we had like Wolverine claws and... You know, like I'm a theater teacher, so I knew where to go for us to get all these ridiculous, you know, machetes and, and, uh, what do you, like battle axes and, and everything. And we did, we did this photo shoot with all of us with the weapons. Um, and that was pretty cool. That's a pretty iconic Nuba picture, uh, that has served us well over the years. You know, in all the retrospective things, I always dig that picture. I want to jump ahead to 2011. Okay. The next big seminal moment yes. in the life of Jen Rinaldi. Specific to Yeah. This is where I'm going to challenge you. You said okay. that like the, the unity and the magic would, would not be matched from 09. I, I say to you, 2011, Jen Rinaldi. 2011 was pretty amazing, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's apples and oranges. Like, you can't really compare them. But, um... There also was incredible bonding, but we also knew then to cultivate that specifically and not in an artificial, that's the thing is, so you want people to bond, but you know, like, like corporate culture and stupid, you can relate to this teacher PD workshops, bullshit. You can't create unity artificially. All you can do is set up circumstances for people to spend time together. And then it will happen if it's meant to, you know. Oh, so 2011. Um, so I had the great honor of being asked to coach the Slam Nuba team. And the Slam Nuba team right out of the gate. So first of all, you have Allende Russell, Theo Wilson. Brando shows up and, and goes hard and makes the Nuba team. You have newcomer, as far as slam teams, Jovan Mays. Someone who everyone loved. Well, he had been on... He'd been on. He'd been on 2010. Yeah. 
but he showed hard at the team selection for yeah. 2011. Like Jovan was a big contender. Um, and it was, it was, but then we, then we had our secret weapon. Yeah, you had pure rookie, Dominique. Dominique, Christina, Ashahik. So, um, Dominique had been known in the poetry scenes, um, all over the place, but she wasn't a slammer. And she decided to throw her hat in the ring. And, um... I will say with no asterisks whatsoever that she is one of the most powerful poets I have ever seen in my entire life. She is amazing. And she and Allende had been friends since they were children. Went to school together. So they went to school together. So you have this powerhouse team of all really strong voices. Um, You already have a bond from childhood between two people who were totally comfortable working with each other right from the beginning. And they both could sing. And they wanted to incorporate music in it. But frankly, music had become a cliche in slam poems in the way that people used them to open. Like, it's one of those things that happens in slam. When it's done right, it can fucking slay. And it is so powerful and amazing when everybody starts copying it, not everybody utilizes it that way, and it had become a cliche. Um, I mean, you get your David Blairs who right, do it right, right, and it's and then you, and get, then you see what it can be, right. and you get a hundred people trying to be that. Right, thing. it's the same. It's like um, number poems. Do you know what I mean? Like when list poems are done well, they're so powerful. But there was a run there for a while where everybody and their mother was like one, two. Anyway, anyway, so um, so Nuba. 2011 Allende and Dominique so we start throwing out ideas for things and Allende and Dominique are like we have a couple of things that we're working on and everything and we'll show you guys and so it's early in the summer I want to say like early June like right around this time 2011 and we have a rehearsal over at Jovan's house and we are out on the patio and Jovan's mother has made us heaps of food as she always did and everything, and we're hanging out, and they're like, okay, so we're getting there with this piece, and we want to show you. And Allende and Dominique got up. Oh, I'm getting shivers just thinking about it. Um, and it was the first time I ever heard the two of them do a mandala. And it sounds so corny, and it, like, I didn't think we will win the national. I thought we could win. As soon as I saw them, I like now it had been several years that I had been involved and watching and part of it and everything. And I had been on a team that had won and I had been on teams that had missed and I had been, you know, and I knew we could win. Like the, I, I was at that moment, like we could do this. And then Brandon had honeymoon in Kyoto, which was like just blew my fucking head off. Like, so everyone had Indies. Yes. Everyone had solid, powerful, amazing Indies. Um, and then, you know, uh, Theo had um, Jester. We talked about Dominique that. had Wolfpack. Yep. Day had Grandfather. Yep. I mean, and they all had Deep Pockets. Like, I'm just naming like the number one poems of these people. Like, we had, and that's the thing. So you want to talk about strategy coach? 
What's strategy? Deep pockets. If you have, if you, good poems. You know what I mean? You have to have a lot of good fucking poems. If you have a lot of good fucking poems, you can win. You're going to win. So there was this poem that everyone was super invested in. And it was in response to, and you know what? Right now on this podcast, I'm going to say what I have said to him personally. Theo Wilson, you were right. The most important thing that we should have been paying attention to was the prison industrial complex. Okay? And Theo wanted to do a poem about the prison industrial complex. And he wanted to do a poem about the prison industrial complex. And we all kept writing and it just wasn't gelling. Like it just wasn't, not we, they all kept writing. And it wasn't like we were getting the pieces, but it was disjointed. But then Dominique was like, we can do chain gang songs. And, everything. and the, you know, the idea of the chain gang is what led to the prison industrial complex. So we ended up backing up. And everybody wrote into the chain gang. All right. So you decide to incorporate chain gang songs into this poem. Yes. And again, it was magic. Like <clears throat> Brandon kind of narrating um, was creepy as fuck. And we used the image of this white guy narrating with the four black members of our team as the gang. Um, and then with the amazing voices that they had and incorporating that and the rhythm and the choreography, like it just packed a wallop, if I do say so. Like it was just a really powerful poem. Well, because not only did you have Allende and Dominique, Theo can sing. Oh, Theo can Theo, sing his yeah. ass off. Theo, yeah. Like, and Jovan holds it down. Yeah. So, I mean, we were... So you guys, like... It was, yeah. it was great. Yeah. It was great. Um, so, like, so we had... Uh, and then we had, like, fun group pieces. We had Animals Will Fuck You Up, <laughs> which was one of the most ridiculous things we've ever done. But it played at Nats at the right moment. It was the right poem. And it scored like a motherfucker. Um... And it really, it was literally a poem about how people shouldn't fuck with animals. And it, and like, and it was, it came from a conversation where we were all hanging out, laughing our asses off as we did so often that summer, talking about um, how this is something that black people know that white people don't seem to. And they were making fun of our kind. They were making fun of the fact that white people are like, oh, look, the octopus. We, you know, like, come here, pet this or whatever. And like, the black people are like, Fuck no. Animals will fuck you up. And that's where the poem came from. And then it was just absurd and fun. And... Of course, in their defense, Deer Skull. Okay, so there is In their defense, (laughs) Deer Skull. So apparently there's been a podcast about this already. Uh, One of the more interesting things on our journey when we finally... Oh, so I do want to say... So... Because we knew how important it was to bond. Um, And we have this incredibly powerful team. But a bunch of people, you know, these are busy people with all kinds of things in their lives. All of us had different shit going on the last week and a half of July. Which is not good going into Nats starting whatever, August 6th or 7th. So I made a decision as the coach. So we were renting kind of like an Airbnb sort of thing. We were renting someone's house in Boston. But... East Coast, my stomping grounds. So I was like, you know what? We need to go to the beach. We had a great time in West Palm Beach years ago, and this is my place. So 
we <clears throat> got hotel rooms in Branford, Connecticut, near Hammonasset Beach. And we went a few days early, all together as a team, to hang out at the beach for a couple of days and practice poems. And you have never seen... So there's two notable things okay. um, before the deer skull. So the first... <laughs> Is you have never seen anything till you've seen people on the beaches of Connecticut. <laughs> when Slam Nuba is standing in the shoreline doing their poems out loud on the beach, you know, uh, like little Connecticut folks at the end of their day in the sunset did not know what hit them, but they were, they loved it and everything. They were pretty impressed. The other thing was going out to a longshoreman's bar. In Connecticut, like you're talking like white working class with Slam Nuba for karaoke night. Oh my God. It, we blew the roof I'm off sure the motherfucker sure and it was so much fun and so amazing. And I mean, you can only imagine Allende and Theo and Jovan and Dominique on the fucking mic Now, Brandon chose not to go with us, and this is significant later. Okay. So, Brandon had been exploring around the hotel. And there was a wooded area out back. And he's like, no, I don't want to go karaoke. It's kind of not my thing. And we were like, dude, we're bonding. Like, come on. He's like, it'll be okay. You go ahead. Brandon, um, in his travels in the woods, had come across the skull of a deer um, with bugs and, and some flesh still on it. And like this disgusting fucking deer skull that had meat on it and whatever. And in his mind, which again, like one of the reasons we love Brandon and know that he's brilliant and he's so powerful is because his mind works like nobody else's and everything. And yet he still can convey universal truths to everyone you know and he's just amazing but his mind works like nobody else's and he saw the fucking deer skull and was like this is our talisman we cut heads it's a head it got cut (laughs) so he brings the skull up to the room and the team is like no dude there's fucking bugs on that like get it out of here so unbeknownst to us, he wraps it in a plastic bag and puts it outside. He does not destroy it or put it back from whence it came. But he saves it. Also unbeknownst to us, when we pack to leave Branford, Connecticut and drive to Boston, he puts it in the trunk. We do not know this because there were bugs on it. Like, I mean, there was dead flesh and bugs. It was upsetting. So... Long story short, after much turmoil, um, it happened to be during Ramadan and Dominique was not pleased to have this unclean, nasty thing in the house. We were in someone else's house and he was boiling it in their pasta pot. Like this was someone's house. However, at that point, Allende was like, look, Pasta pot has already been violated. <laughs> I'm going to just jump on the laptop here and find out how you're supposed to preserve bones. 
So he finds out that we need like salt and vinegar and some shit to, so we boil them properly and everything. Because at this point, again, it's a done deal. Like we've already, and Brandon was so positive that this was our talisman, that we had to have this with us and whatever. So at this point, <clears throat> for the sake of peace, and like we all gave in. You can't unboil a deer skull. You can't unboil you know, a deer skull. Like... Um, however, as the coach, you can be like, Brandon, you cannot wear the deer skull on stage to compete. If we win, you can wear that bitch all you want. When we win, you can wear that bitch all you want. But you may not compete with the skull. Well, I'm going to bring it to the venue. Okay, now it is clean. We can do that. So it was under my chair at the venue for final stage, just so you know. Until it was around his neck. <clears throat> Until we won, yeah. and then it was around his neck. Yes, that involved a late night trip to the hardware store. The night, he was so sure that he was going to wear that bitch that he, he made said, arrangements. You know, who's laughing now? Exactly, yeah. Yeah. exactly. Um, <clears throat> and maybe he was right. Maybe that's where all the magic was. Mm -hmm. Because... Then it just, yeah. Came together. So we won the National Poetry Slam again yes, in did. 2011. Yes, you did. Um, with beautiful, powerful work. Um, other teams tried to fuck with us. One of the teams from New York made the mistake of getting up in a prelim bout right before us and kind of mocking. Um, it was a funny, I mean, they're a great team and, and clever. And they were using um, a sometimes use technique where you like note little things about other teams in the competition and everything. And it just shows that you've been listening and whatever. Um, but they made a crack about Nuba incorporating music. Um, and then chain gang and Amandala kind of blew that shit out the water. So, um, and we crushed them in that bout. So it kind of worked out. Um, I want to say that one of the hugest moments for me in 2011 was when I was at my semis bout and found myself surrounded by Ken Arkinds and Katie Worsing, who I had not hung out with collectively in a really long time. And having um, the two of them like appeared out of the crowd mm -hmm. <clears throat> at that point and were watching that bout with me. And that was, that was kind of a Denver poetry moment. Definitely, that I have them. Um, yeah. yeah. And one thing I would like to note from both years that, that Denver has won, um, there has been no no pushback on a national scale. On oh, national, at all. At all. It, and, and what will sometimes happen, I'm not saying it happens all the time or even a lot, but what will sometimes happen is there's, there's a lot of beef. Like, yes. this team didn't deserve to win, or this team only won because of this, this, and this. That has never happened with either team that Denver has won a National Poetry Slam with. Mm -hmm. It's always, it, it, the, Both teams have always been very well respected. It's always been like, of course, of course. you guys deserve to win. Yes. Y you had the Well, because the work. Yeah, you had the work. It's so beautiful. Right. So, uh, 06 was just magical. Mm-hmm. Uh, springboard year for you. Don't trip or puke and just exactly. National Poetry Slam. That, that's 06. And it just happened. 07 and 08 were a little more... It was growing pains growing, for me. And yeah. it was... I want to admit this about myself. Um, it was learning where my ego fit and didn't fit in Poetry Slam. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Learning that it really wasn't about me. And that 
um, and that I had to learn what my role was going to be. That I wasn't one of the people who was a surefire person to make a team. You know what I mean? But that I had other things to contribute and whatever. And uh, yeah, and then 09 was super magic and beautiful and, and brought my heart back to slam. Back. <clears throat> Definitely. And then 2010 reminded me what it was like to be a poet. And uh, I also want to say Theo Wilson coached the shit out of us that summer. Mm -hmm. um, and I learned a lot from him. And 2011 was the culmination of, it really of the was. other end of the spectrum. It, so mm -hmm. again, you know what I mean? Like, of course it's who's on your, like the talent that you start with. There's a baseline there. Do you know what I mean? <clears throat> and sometimes the stars align. And you get this. But it's not just the raw talent of those individual poets. It is the way that they work together. It's how they create together to create new pieces. Um, it's trusting each other and trusting the coach. And it is, and some of it is strategy, you know? And But when all those things, sometimes that swirl, when that all coalesces, sometimes you win the National Poetry Slam. Sometimes. sometimes. Yeah. And I have had the extraordinary fortune of being involved twice um, as a member and then as a coach. Actually, the only human to ever do that yeah. in Denver. The in only Denver. One. I'm sure there's people in other places. I'm sure there are, but in Denver, the only person who has ever won a, slam, a National Poetry Slam as a member of a competing team and as a coach is Jen Rinaldi. Yeah, I am. Yeah, you are. Kind of a big deal. Kind of. So what, what advice would you give... To both a competing member of a slam team and to a coach of a slam team. Ooh. Look, since you've been on both ends of these things, yes. what advice would you give? All right. So if you're a competing member um, to any poet, not however you're handling it, I believe that the thing that separates everything, because at the, the top of the national level, where you have like teams that consistently do well, and you have blah, 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 and people who are really polished, and they tour everywhere and blah, 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 blah. The thing that separates out like consistently great from exceptional champions, I believe every time is sincerity. Is you can, your poem can be too polished and then it doesn't read as genuine. If you, every time you read your poem, if you feel what you felt that compelled you to write it, if you mean it, but you have to really mean it. You can't fake the funk on the nasty dunk, okay. right? Like you can't. Um, so be sincere. As a competing member, trust your teammates. Be willing to go outside of your comfort zone in collaboration. Like, you know, toss around ideas, like play with ideas that you didn't think that might not have grabbed you at first, you know, but like, and write and write and write and write. And practice and practice and practice. But then don't practice too much. In competition, do not run your poems more than once lightly that day. Because, again, the biggest thing is sincerity and being genuine. And I believe, and now I sound like a crazy-ass hippie, um, you don't want to take the emotional energy. You don't want to spend the emotional energy of the poem 
before the competition. You don't want to leave it in the locker room. You right. you got to put it on the it's field. It's all got to be on the field. Which is easier said than done, by the way. Especially Absolutely. if you've had a poem that's been around for a little while. It's Absolutely. tough to into that sincerity. And that's why, so I'm a strong believer in not over... You have to get your poems to a point where they're... Automatic. You know, automatic, that you're not going to drop them, like, memory-wise. Like, and some people struggle with that more than others. and what You know, so it, you have to get it so that it's completely automatic. But then... In those last couple weeks, you can't over-rehearse them. I believe that. I believe that strongly. Um, as a coach, coach. you got to be smart. Like, trust your team. Again, the best strategy is deep pockets. You know, like, make sure that, um, and that people are comfortable. I don't now. This Jen Rinaldi as a coach is different from a lot of other people's coaches. There are many very successful coaches who strategize on the fly in competition who adjust their choices <clears throat> based on the rounds and how things are going and what they think they need. And all of their poets have to be ready to perform whatever they have in their pockets um, at, at a moment's notice. Um, I like my competitors, my poets, to be super calm and confident about what they're doing that night. So our strategy is set before we go. Um, and everybody knows what they're doing that night. And everybody knows, you know how it's going to play and whatever. And so far I've done well with that. Um, but again, like there are some people who are more comfortable and feed on that energy of strategizing on the fly. So I don't think that's a bad thing. It just doesn't work for me. Um, be sincere, be sincere, be sincere, be sincere, be sincere. How do you, you talked a little bit before about one of the essential things is creating opportunities for bonding for unity that, that don't mm -hmm. necessarily have to do with like writing or performing how do you do that as a coach how can you do that in a way that's genuine that's not seen as transparent and still get the desired um result? well first of all so naturally when you're a compete when you're preparing for competition you spend a lot of time together and you have to make sure that not all of that time is rehearsal you know that you have rehearsal time but then maybe everyone's going to go to a karaoke night together or um I mean, in the case, like, I knew that we were going to need to recenter ourselves, so we went to the beach. And we only rehearsed for an hour every day. Like, all the rest of the time, we were hanging out. Um, really, it's just spending time. I mean, there's no... You plan things so that people spend time together. You know, you share meals. And again, it's kind of easy in the context of that, because everybody's busy, and you have all this time for rehearsal. Um... So you meet at Jovan's house first and Mama Maze is going to make some amazing food for all of us. Or um, we had a Casa Bonita night a couple of times like, with different Casa teams. Bonita. And No, you know, but like you do, you do things together um, that are not necessarily poetry related. All right, this is my last question. Okay. And it's the last question I ask everybody. Okay. So you're walking along the beach. We talk about the beach. Okay. Um, you trip over a magic lamp. While you're there at the beach. Okay. You, you wrote it three times. Magic Genie pops out and says, you have one wish for Denver poetry. What is your one wish? Oh, that people honor the elders that came before them and create new magic that is all their own. So that they know that Ken Arkind and Ian Doherty and Young American Eddie and Jen Rinaldi and Andrea Gibson, like that they know kind of where they come from but that they forge their own path moving forward and how do you think we can do that 
Um, I hate to be a broken record, be sincere. Write work that comp- Never, ever write to win slams. Write what you have to write. And the power of that does win slams. Sincere work wins slams. And maybe listen to the Mile High Poetry Slam podcast. And listen to the Mile High Poetry Slam <laughs> podcast. Absolutely. That's where you're going to get like the Ian Doggerty's and the Jen Rinaldi's and, and mm-hmm. your, your lineage. Okay. Um, is there anything you want to promote or plug or give a shout out to before I turn the recorder off? The National Poetry Slam will be in Denver. Yes, it will. Uh, August 7th through 12th, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Somewhere in that area, yeah. Um, and, and it'll be fantastic. It'll be old home week. We'll see lots of friends and then lots of new faces. And we will shine out as a city, and it'll be awesome. I have it on good authority that Jen Rinaldi is going to be part of a hometown oh heroes God. showcase before the National Yeah, Poetry so you Slam. might get to hear a really old poem. That'll hey, be great. You know what? If, <laughs> if I've never heard it before, it's a brand new poem. To that's me. very true. So. And most people haven't, so there we go. So you should check that out. I believe that's the Sunday before the National Poetry Slam at the Mercury oh, Cafe. hey. I believe. Okay. So. All right, thank you again. Huge thank you to Jim Rinaldi. Oh, thank you so much. This was actually fun. (laughs) Another fantastic interview from the Mile High Poetry Slam podcast. I hope you liked it as much as I did because I liked it a whole lot. You know what? If you liked it, tell your friends. Tell your enemies if you hated it, you know? (laughs) Let the word out. Uh, this, This podcast only survives by how many people listen to it. So if you liked it and you think you know someone else who would like it, then let them know. If you uh, want to give this a five-star rating on iTunes, that would probably help us out a lot as well. And and if you can do that, I can keep on giving you great interviews with local Poetry Slam legends, giving you the stories behind the events, and letting you know more about what's going on and and what happened and how it happened and and what shook down. So if you liked what you heard and you want to hear more, then... Tell some people. Let people know how great it is over here at the My Life Poetry Slam podcast. Shameless plug. Now we're going to break down this last weekend in poetry with the Mercury Cafe. Denver. 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 Queen City of the Plains. Lift high our spirit. Sing well our praise. For in you we live and are loved. So first thing is absolutely first, for the first time since I've started this podcast, I absentmindedly did not record the slam. I know, boo, boo, the podcast host, boo. I thought it was recording the entire time, it was not. So what I did get for you was the open mic and your amazing, wonderful feature, Joy Young. So we're going to talk about those things. I'm going to break them down, give you the clips like I always do. And then we're going to talk about what happened in the slam and give you a breakdown just without the clips because boo, the podcast host. So first up, the open mic had your usual complement of eight poets. They were yours truly, Eddie Eifler, then Emily Camp, Jessica Bardot, Anissa, Stylo Marks, Barb Test, Chris, and Vitamin D. Of those names, I want to start you off with a clip from Emily Camp, who read a poem about loving someone who literally physically cannot love you back. Emily works with uh, troubled youth and uh, youth with mental disabilities, and so it's a very difficult, very thankless job 
to do and uh, wrote a whole poem about like w- one of your favorite you know people you work with one of your favorite kids students whatever to work with physically like unable to express any kind of appreciation for who you are what you do your role in that person's life so here's a clip from emily camp's open mic poem i submerge my hands in cool water feeling the tinge of the open wounds on my flesh bite marks scratches headbutt bruises to the chest but they do not sting for long because i'm so quick to remember their meaning they're a reminder of progress they're a slightly cracked slowly opening door to your brain and even though i'm pretty sure emily's talking about literal scars and scrapes the metaphor is very very real so anyone who works in teaching anyone who works with uh, mental illness or mental disabilities can absolutely relate to this uh you you want to love these people so much and you pour everything you've got into it and all they give back to you is uh lashing out all they give back to you is uh pain and 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 sometimes violence either you know physical or mental so this is something that I personally connect with. It's something that I think a lot of people in the room connected with. So uh, thank you once again to Emily Camp for that amazing poem. The next clip I'm going to give you is from a longtime legend in Denver poetry, Barb Test. Now, I guess Barb actually signed up for the slam, which I've been doing this for a long time. I don't think I've ever seen Barb Test slam ever. Barb is one of the mainstays in the open mic. She's like the slam grandma. She is so supportive. She lets people know what's going on. But I don't think I've ever actually seen her slam anything. And she told this story about how she signed up for the slam, but then didn't have time to do it. She had to go meet someone at 9 o'clock. So she instead ran the open mic. But she read a poem that she would have slammed with had she been able to stay. And anyone who knows Barb Test knows how absurd that statement is. Not absurd in, like, a ridiculous sense, but absurd in, like, oh my god, what happened to the universe? Barb Test is, I want to say, in her mid to late 70s, maybe early 80s. She's four foot eleven. you know, white curly hair. Like, picture your prototypical slam grandma, and that is Barb Test. And then she goes and drops this poem on us. I'm having multiple orgasms with life itself. So when the psychiatrist asks, how's your sex drive? After very careful consideration, I replied, it's just fine. Proving once and for all that poetry knows no age limit, that Barb can still get up there and hold it down even though a lot of people say that Slam is a young person's game. Uh, Barb still, I think, could have done very well with this poem. So thank you again to Barb Test. And I really just wanted to get her poems out there. I think this is the first time I've had an opportunity to get her on the show. So I wanted to just put her out there as, as a token, as a thank you so much for doing what you do, Barb Test. And the last clip I'm going to play for you from the open mic is from Chris. Chris was a new voice. Uh, I don't think I'd ever heard her before. She did two very short poems. And I'm going to let this first one speak for itself. One fucking piece of darkness in this room shook off and came to the light. Poetry appreciation, motherfuckers. (laughs) Shout out to Aaron Bradley and all of those who love the phrase motherfuckers. For you from Chris on this first uh, poem that she read in the open mic. So that was that was a, a nice little sampling, nice little taste of what happened in the open mic. 
And we had a feature from Phoenix, Arizona, Joy Young, who was awesome. Joy was great. Uh, read a lot of shorter poems, not a whole lot of what you'd call traditional slam-length poems, but even the shorter stuff was amazing, was awesome. And it's probably because uh, Joy got up there and, and they announced that there is no slam where they come from in Phoenix, which is kind of a heartbreaker because Phoenix and that whole area in Arizona has always had a very strong traditionally very strong slam scene so to hear that there's nothing going on out there kinda makes me sad a little bit and it's probably why these poems didn't fit your traditional prototypical prototypical slam format uh... the first clip i'm going to play from you is from trying to reconcile uh... being genderqueer with dating and interacting and who your dating pool is going to be so let me play you a clip from this first poem from joe young Consider wearing your lesbian identity like a thrift store suit. It will never fit you quite right. It wasn't tailored to suit your body, but you can still look fucking good in it. At a tie that brings out your eyes, choose between the half and full wins or not. Remember that this doesn't have to be your noose. You don't have to hang here forever. There's other language suspended in your closet. And this clip would establish a, a strong motif that Joy would follow pretty much throughout their entire set about really, really strong metaphor and extended metaphor of very, very complex or complicated issues put in a way that is easily digestible, easily understandable for the audience. This idea of you're going to put on your lesbian thrift store suit, and it's not made for you, but you still look good in it, and how that, that can be exploded and expanded throughout the course of the poem. It was, it was really, really good, and it, it really hit home on what it what it must be like to be genderqueer but still want to like reach out and connect and date with people who maybe don't identify as genderqueer and who do you uh, go to and who are your people when that's the case so great way to open up the feature set from Joy. This second clip is the first clip in a series where Joy addressed their family. Now this clip uh, specifically was about their stepdad and how he invited himself over for dinner and he sits in the trans chair and the feminist chair and and the queer chair and all these different chairs around the table and, and what those chairs mean so here's a clip from the second poem from joe young and this is when i become acutely aware of my transness chair and my feminist chair how they're stacked on top of one another propping the closet door shut from the inside again just like that first clip joy takes this very simple idea of different chairs, of the queer chair and the trans chair and the feminist chair, and can do a, a lot with those things about how these trans and feminist chairs are stacked on top of one another, keeping the closet uh, locked from the inside and what else is in that closet. Uh, they go on to talk about uh, the stepdad has a lot of stuff that he would like to put in that closet, uh, mom's gambling addiction and all of these other you know things that the family and parents tend to ignore when they're trying to just get along and get through uh, a night or make the best out of a bad situation. It was it was really great, really phenomenal piece. And my personal favorite poem of the night was in this clip number three right here. Uh, Mother can't imagine a world without sandwiches. So, uh, like I said, that last poem, that last clip, really started off this series of poems about Joy's family. And this mother... Uh, poem 
was absolutely spot on. The way it was layered, the the craft, the construction of it was just so good, and everything complemented everything else. There wasn't a there wasn't a needless word in this entire poem, and it was more your traditional slam-length poem. It ran, I want to say, about two and a half, maybe two minutes and forty seconds, and just just so good from start to finish. So here's a clip from uh, Joy's mother can't imagine a world without sandwiches. My imagination does not know how to bend yet to accommodate a universe without my mother. When I'm with her, I just don't contest the world as she knows it. The world that is full of sandwiches. The one in which I am a woman. The one in which I am gay. The one in which we have a real relationship. I don't think that my mom can imagine a universe without me either. She hasn't stopped consuming my stories, though she has cut out at least half of me. So good, because at the very start of this poem, Joy introduces this idea that their mom got diagnosed with celiac disease. And instead of just cutting out all wheat, all gluten, uh, mom just only cuts it out in degrees. You know, only has half a waffle. Um, can't picture gluten-free bread as actual bread, so still eats sandwiches. And then the way that Joy transitioned from that to genderqueer, to gay, to all of these things, all of these intersections that Joy identifies as was just phenomenal. I cannot sing the praises of this poem loud enough. It was so good. It was my favorite one of the set. And the last clip I'm going to play you is from Joy's Nephew. <laughs> the third in the series of three poems about Joy's family, um, about how difficult it can be to navigate uh, pronouns and being genderqueer to a young human, to a young nephew just learning how to go to the bathroom for the first time. Uh, so here's your clip four from Joy Young's set. He replies, okay, but you're not a girl like mom is a girl. And he's not wrong. And I really think this clip hit to the heart of the the point of this poem about how since there's not really a word for it, we're just going to say Aunt Joy, even though that isn't exactly correct for the nephew, but how the nephew kind of understands that, well, I might call you Aunt Joy and you might be my mom's sister, but you're not a girl the same way that mom's a girl. And the nephew's not wrong. And so it was really a, a great way to talk about uh, the use of language, to talk about how to talk about these things to uh, young people, to kids, to children, in a way that they maybe understand, maybe don't, that could be confusing with them, but that they still get on some level. So <clears throat> uh, a fantastic, amazing feature set by Joy Young. If you missed it, then you missed uh, a great, great night. And if you did miss it, then hopefully some of these clips will give you a little taste of what was happening out there. And now we'll talk about the slam. Boo, the podcast host. Uh, in your slam, we had Angela Nicole's The Sacrifice. In the first round, we had Wheeler Light doing his poem Not Applicable, which we've uh, had on this podcast before. We had Cloven, who's been coming around for the last couple of weeks. Lindsay Thomas. Nico Wilkinson, who we haven't heard from in a while. It was really good to have Nico back. Uh, Nico usually holds up in Colorado Springs, so it was really nice to see them come and, and read some poems and, and just do what they do on the stage. The first poem, I, this is where it killed me, 
not to have this particular slam recorded because I would have loved to give you a clip from Nico's first poem about mental illness takes the stand. Really a persona poem from the point of view of mental illness after every single one of these mass shootings, these these gun murders, and about how, you know what, my hands might not be clean, but I'm not the only one to blame here. You have toxic masculinity, you have uh, all of these... Uh, other issues going racism and, and institutionalized hatred for certain people and all of these things need to be uh, need to be held accountable for these uh, mass shootings not just mental illness it was a fantastic piece really really great then we had Johnny Osai now it is important to note that this slam took place on Father's Day and so that really colored a lot of the poem choices that a lot of people read uh, Johnny read a brand new piece in the first round, about growing up, about his family, his mom, his dad, and again, another point where I really would have loved to have recorded that night, that particular part of the night, because I would have loved to put this poem up on the podcast. Um, but again, boo the podcast host. Then we had Polly Lippman doing a Jew in vocabulary, which is a, another poem that we've covered here on this podcast before. We had Jess Nieberg after Polly doing palindromes, one of uh, Jess's more solid, stronger works. And we had Mickey Ran, who we haven't seen in quite some time. I think this is the first time we've seen Mickey Slam since team selection. And like I said, this took place on Father's Day, and so that, that really did color a lot of the poem selections. Mickey got up and read a poem about being a survivor of... Uh, familial abuse, uh, specifically at the hands of her dad. And instead of calling it Father's Day, Mickey calls it Survivor's Day. It was a great, great piece. And we had a tie in the first round, so we brought five people into the second round. Your second round was Johnny Osai, then Wheeler Light. And Wheeler Light did his poem about abuse of fathers and a house on fire, the one about uh, bad jokes and lawyer jokes that I'm pretty sure we've covered on here before. We had Mickey Ran after Wheeler Light doing Bipolar Girl, which is another poem of Mickey's that we've uh, heard before. I believe she did it at the team selection. We had Nico Wilkinson, who had the high score and elected to go fourth out of fifth. And then Jess Nieberg went last. And from those five, in the final round, Johnny Osai doing one of his older pieces, one I haven't heard from before. And I guess he wanted to change up the, the tone, the, the tenor of what was going on. Uh, this is a poem where he talks about a first date and about how he's on this first date with this young lady that he really likes, and uh, I love you just slips out of his mouth, and how that was like the most inappropriate thing to say in that moment, because you're not supposed to say I love you on a first date, but then he's like, why aren't you supposed to say I love you on a first date? Why is that creepy? You know, if we all uh, loved each other in that way, then that is actually a good thing. And so he really turns it around and flips it, and I'm glad to hear this poem, because I haven't heard it in a long time. Again, really wish I could have recorded this slam. And going up last in the final round was Mickey Rand doing a doppelganger's piece about the multiverse and about how there's a universe where her, Mickey, and the the subject of the poem, this this you in the poem, are just constantly having sex, constantly fucking. And, you know, when we are folding our socks in this universe, those two are fucking. And when we are... Uh, eating dinner in this universe those two are fucking on the dinner table you know it, it was a good piece it was a funny piece and that netted mickey ran the victory for the evening uh yeah again 
I'm very, very sorry. Next week I will make absolutely double, triple checked that I get you the recordings for the evenings. Um, but a couple takeaways before we get out of here. Your next interview on the Mile High Poetry Slam podcast is going to be none other than one of the important founding cornerstones of Denver Slam history, Panama Soweto, is going to be your interview next week. Set your calendars to stun, people, because I don't know if Soweto has done an interview like this in many a year. I don't know if he's he's really talked about a lot of what happened with him personally, uh, with him between other people, so you definitely want to check out next week's Mile High Poetry Slam podcast. Uh, we are still looking for plenty of volunteers for the National Poetry Slam. If you would like to volunteer, you should go to npsdenver.com. Huge thank you to Jill Carno. Thank y'all. You're, you're so wonderful. Thank you to Piper Mullins. Nobody wants this. And thank you to the audience at the Mercury Cafe. That'll do it for you for this week. I'm so glad you could come and, and spend some time with us. Uh, if you liked it, then let your friends know. If you hated it, let your enemies know. If you really liked it, then maybe give us a five-star rating on uh, iTunes and download the episode and tell people about what's going on here. So until next week, remember that the point is not the point. That the point is not even the poetry. That the point is, was, and always will be the people. See you next week.